Uh, the Bible reading for this morning comes from the Epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported in saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. morning. Wasn't that a strange passage of scripture? I thought it was strange. My name's Dave Kilpatrick. I serve as the director of ministries across Kerry if I've not met you and it's just great to be with you. I love Romans. Romans is an awesome book. Uh, we're doing a series on Romans and there are just some fantastic verses in Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What can separate us from the love of Christ? These scriptures are found in Romans. And um, I get this one. Romans is, a, Romans is a big book. It's deep and wide and remarkable. And I encourage you as, you, as we're going through this series, we're, we're, we're just dipping in and out of it. We're spending about 10 weeks on five chapters. We could spend every single Sunday for the next couple of years and still not fathom its depth. It is beautiful and remarkable and challenging um, and rich. And so I encourage you as we are spending time in Romans, read it and think about it and reflect it and ask questions about it. It's a fantastic passage to be asking questions about. And I'm given Romans 3, 1 to 8, which is essentially Paul having an argument, kind of with himself, because he's writing a letter, um, to get an understanding of where these verses fit in. We've got to have a little bit of context about Romans. Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome after he was been a missionary, a church planter, an evangelist for about 25 years. So he's been doing th his things for a long time. He would have preached the gospel on countless occasions. He'd have debates and arguments and proponing, propounding the truth of Christ in all sorts of different scenarios and varieties of, of areas and through different people. And so he would have had lots and lots of debate, he would have had lots of questions, he would have had lots of challenges, he would have had lots of reasons why people didn't think necessarily uh, they needed to agree with what he was saying. And so as he's reflecting in this letter to the Romans, you're starting to see a little bit of this come out. 
But Romans was probably written somewhere around AD, uh, AD 59. So, and he's writing to the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome was not like one big building. There were lots and lots of house churches, but he's essentially writing to the Christian community in Rome. And there's a whole lot of speculation about how the church in Rome started and whether it was primarily uh, from Jewish people initially. But what we do know that it, the Jews traditionally in Rome had created some problems. And in or about AD 49, Emperor Claudius decided he was going to solve this problem and he excluded all of the Jews from Rome. He said, you've all got to get out. And so overnight, the Christian church in Rome became almost exclusively Gentile. The Jewish members of the church needed to leave. Now, a lot of them would have been congregating in house churches, but all of a sudden the church in Rome was comprised of Gentiles. By the time this letter is written, in AD 59, probably 10 years or so, or about 10 years after they're all excluded, the Jews have been able to come back. And so you've got this discussion in Romans about the Gentiles and about the Jews and how they, they fit together. And from last week when Peter spoke, in Romans chapter 2, Paul is essentially saying, look, ultimately everyone is in need of Christ. Everyone's fallen short. And he's speaking to the Jews and saying, look, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter that you're a Jew on the outside. It doesn't matter that you've got the Scriptures. It doesn't matter that you're circumcised according to the covenant of Abraham that God made with Abraham. These things in and of themselves will not protect and secure your relationship with God. Paul in chapter 2 is saying it's not what you are on the outside that matters, it's what you are on the inside. It's not the fact that you've got the law, it's whether you're obedient to the law, whether it's transforming your life. It's not whether you're a Jew on the outside, externally it's whether you're a follower and obedient to God on the inside. And so, this is pretty challenging to the Jews. If you were a Jew, and you're a descendant of Father Abraham, the covenant that God had made with Abraham, you were a descendant of the people that God had rescued out of Egypt, you were the people that God had given the Ten Commandments to, you had a rich and deep history as the people of God, and this guy's saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. The Jews and the Gentiles are going to be the same as whether you're being obedient to God. That's the issue. And you can imagine a Jew saying, well, what's the benefit then of being a Jew? What's the, what's the value in circumcision? And that's precisely how Romans chapter 3 verse 1 starts. What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And we can understand how this argument might arise from what Paul is saying to the Jewish community in Rome. And Paul says in verse 2, much in every way. First of all, so what we know when he says first of all is we're likely to get a list. So we've asked the question, what's the benefit in there being a Jew? Much in every way. First and we're waiting for second and third and fourth, but they never come. 
So we don't know what happened, but I, I reckon Paul was probably a bit like me. And he probably was dictating this. There was a scribe and he was writing and, well, you'll argue this. And, well, first, let me tell you. And then he has another thought. Well, you'll argue this. And he completely forgets the list that he was going on. So that's not particularly helpful. But what we do have in the scripture is, as Paul said, much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. He then leaves the list and goes on to something else. But the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What he's highlighting here is this is, this is a privilege. This is a, this is a gift. You were given the scriptures. Now, the, the, the scriptures for the Jews in the early days was essentially the first five books of the Bible. The Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and, and some of the other stuff had gathered. But that was initially the scriptures. And Paul is saying, you have been gifted and entrusted the very words of God. Now today, we have been entrusted with the scriptures. I carry them around in my back pocket almost all the time. And I think it's helpful to remind ourselves what an extraordinary gift and privilege that is. That we have the scriptures. We have the words of God. There are, this is a unique moment in human history. For most of human history, people have not had access to the scriptures. They've not, certainly not had them in their own language. And even today, there are still people, groups, who do not have the scriptures in their, their mother tongue, in their heart language. But Paul's saying, just having the scriptures is not enough. It's a question of whether we are obedient to the Scriptures. It's whether we are being transformed by them. And I think, likewise for us, the fact that I've got them on my phone and I can access multiple different versions of it and I carry it around and it is close to me almost all of the time is a privilege, but it's not enough. If all I do is carry it around and I don't actually read it and I don't actually allow it to transform me and I don't actually be obedient to it, it's as though I was a Jew on the outside but not on the inside. It's not doing its work. The next part of the, the passage goes on, well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithful null, unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Now, to, to understand this, essentially, the, the, the Jewish community thought they were the people of God. They were secure. God had called them, he'd promised them, he'd covenanted with their father Abraham. They were the people of the covenant. They were okay. They missed the point of the covenant. They were meant to be a light to the nations. And in fact, they just excluded themselves from the nations. But they, they thought they were okay. And here Peter, Paul is saying, well, no, you're not. You're not. There's, there's benefit of being a Jew, but you're not okay just because you're a descendant of Abraham. And so they could, they could ask the question, well, if, if, if we're unfaithful, will that, that mean that we're not captured by the promises of the covenant? Does that mean that God is unfaithful? Will our unfaithfulness undermine God's faithfulness? Perhaps not an unreasonable question. And Paul answers, no, 
Not at all. Let God be true and hu every human being a liar. What Paul is saying essentially is God is faithful. That is an aspect of his character. He cannot act inconsistent with his character. Even if everyone else is false, God will be true. But that, 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 that under, misunderstood the covenant. See, the covenant wasn't just, I'll make a covenant with you and you'll be my people and everything will be good. It had blessings and cursings. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And they also didn't necessarily understand that the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham was actually Jesus. And it was in and through Jesus that people would be saved. And so they're saying, well, hold on. If, if you're saying that just because we're a Jew and, and descendants of Abraham doesn't get us there, well, then, then if we're unfaithful, we're lost. And that doesn't seem to be in accordance with the covenant. So does that undermine God's faithfulness? No. And so it goes on in verse 5. Well, if, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly... What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. I'm using a human argument, Paul says. So remember, Paul's still dictating. There's someone, he's walking around, he's, whatever it is, he's walking around. And um, he might have been sitting down, but you can't really dictate great letters sitting down. You've got to get up and walk around. So he's in unquestionably walking around, because Romans is a great letter. And some guy's furiously trying to keep up. And so what is he saying? If, if our unfaithfulness enhances God's faithfulness, so he's, he's saying, well, if, if the fact that we're unfaithful, notwithstanding that God is faithful, well, then God's faithfulness looks even more impressive given our unfaithfulness because does if, so if God is looking more impressive because we did something wrong, well, it's not really fair that he would judge us because we're making him look good. That's essentially the argument. It's like my kids saying, um, I, ne I need to punish you for doing something wrong. Yeah, but, but you're going to forgive me and you wouldn't get the chance to forgive me unless I've done something wrong. And your forgiveness makes you look better. So, you know, I should be allowed to be free. It's, it, it's starting to get a bit shaky at this point. Certainly not, says Paul. If that were so, how could God judge the world? He goes on in verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood, enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Because ultimately, I'm making God look good. I'm doing a good thing. Verse 8, why not say, as some slanderously claim to say, let us do evil so that good may result? And Paul says their condemnation is condemned. So you can see that the first question in Romans 1 is not, uh, Romans 3 verse 1 is not, not an unreasonable question. You can see the logic. But it starts to get sillier and sillier as he goes through. Well, that's all very interesting and very well and good, but what the heck do we take from it? And I think there's two, there's probably lots of things we can take from it. There's, there's two things I want to draw out today. The first is we can find ourselves in exactly the same place as the Jewish community being challenged because the mere fact that I attend a building in which church attends and the mere fact that I walk around with the scriptures and the mere fact that I might have a, a Jesus saves sticker on my car is just stuff 
Is it transforming me? Am I actually being obedient? Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Am I actually surrendering to him? Am I being obedient? Is my heart, as the scriptures say, being circumcised? Is it being shaped? Because it is relationship with Jesus that brings life. It's not just calling myself a Baptist or a Catholic or an Anglican or whatever it is. It's not just owning a Bible. It's living in that. The other, the other thing I think we can take note of is that perhaps sometimes we just need to rest into the fact that God is God and stop arguing the point and do what he tells us. Who's a morning person? Do I have some fellow brothers and sisters in the house today? A disturbingly small number. Who's, a, who's not a morning person? This is a Baptist church. What are non-morning people doing in a Baptist church? Have, have, uh, have you heard the poem? Mary had a little lamb that thought it was a sheep. It walked into a Baptist church and died for lack of sleep. I think morning people... Non-morning people are a bit suspicious about morning people. I think for non-morning people, morning people look a bit like this. Like, there's just something wrong that you can look and feel like that early in the morning. I don't know what it is, but it's not natural. Whereas non-morning people, I think, think non-morning people look a bit like this. You know, what? Who? Um, why just... Go away. I know this deeply because I am married to a non-morning person and I am a morning person. And when I'm feeling a little bit too bouncy in the morning and my self-preservation mechanism hasn't really kicked in, I will ask Vaughn, my wife, a complex and deeply philosophical question <laughs> before she has had a coffee and a shower. And when I do, you see this sort of pained, concerned, anguished look on her face. And what's hilarious is she doesn't know I'm giving her a hard time because she's a not a morning person and hasn't woken up. If she was a morning person, she'd just tell me to go away. But she, so she's trying to engage and answer and, Mike, you de I deserve your condemnation and she deserves <laughs> your empathy. Another picture. So to whom is this a friend? To whom is this the, the herald to leap out of bed, seize the day, enjoy the flowers in the morning, jump and launch yourself into everything that the day has? I don't know whether the people that put their hand up as morning people are really morning people. For whom is this a personal, vicious and malicious machine? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing that. I've been, a, I've been a dad for long enough that I've had lots and lots of nights where I haven't had nearly enough sleep. And I have woken up enough times, notwithstanding that I am absolutely a morning people, feeling a little resentful of that little red alarm clock. But you see, the, the PM me, the evening me, at whatever time I've gone to bed, will set the alarm clock with concern and compassion for the AM me. 
because I know how long it's going to take me to get out of bed and get ready and then get into work and prepare for the meeting I have before work that I'm really not prepared for so that I can step into that meeting well and my day is going to go well. And when I set the alarm clock at night, I'm doing so for the direction, instruction and empowerment of my morning meet. But if I've had a night with very little sleep and I wake up, I'm not so fond of the direction that has been lovingly given to me to enhance my day. And I have, I admit, laid in bed arguing and twisting the laws of time and space. So I have argued and debated and rationalised that in fact it doesn't take me 20 minutes or half an hour. Today it will probably only take me 10 and then when that 10 is up, it'll be 5. And the regular trip to work that I always do, that always takes 15 or 20 minutes, well probably I could... I could move that a bit closer. And I really don't have that much work to do before this. I can probably just wing it. I can step in there. It's fine. None of this stuff I actually believe. I just don't want to get out of bed. And so I'm, I'm lying in bed arguing stuff that I don't actually believe so I can stay in the comfort of my bed. Our kids do that. What I was going to do in the sermon, I was going to get Luke up here. My youngest. Now, Luke could, without drawing breath, if I let him, I could ask him to tidy his room, and he could run for 30 minutes with just a fluent tirade of all of the reasons why this would be emotionally damaging to him, completely wreck the system he was developing over numbers of years to organise his room, why it would be a contravention of his rights, why it would be inconsistent with the hum of the universe. It doesn't matter what it would be and it doesn't matter what I would say. He could come up with an argument as to why it was just a deeply, deeply wrong thing for me to do to ask him to tidy his room. Now, Luke is awesome and occasionally will play that game, but generally he'll go, yeah, sure, Dad. Um... But we do that. I mean, wouldn't it be lovely if we said to our children, my son, would you go and do your homework? And my son says, father, you are always wise (laughs) and loving. You always are good and you only ever act in ways that are for my benefit and your wisdom is vast and beyond me. I do not understand why you ask me to do this, but because you are my father and you are good, I will do it for you because I love you and I trust your wisdom. That would be really nice. Weird. And I'd probably say, who the heck are you and what have you done with my son? But it would be nice. But why should we expect that from our kids when we don't do the same thing with God? See, a pastor friend of mine says, we're all slippery. We wriggle and we squirm and we avoid. And in fact, God is a God who is always good. And the scriptures have been given to us to bring life and hope and freedom for the whole world. And I actually am not that smart. In Romans 1, 21 to 22, the Apostle Paul captures a picture about how we have fallen out of true wisdom. 
And it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And it goes on to talk about they made, they made idols for themselves out of wood and stone. You see, just like my son doesn't always lean into, and my daughters don't always lean into the fact that I'm wise and good, nor do we. Because we think we know, but we actually don't. And quite often the stuff we argue with, we don't even believe. Now God tells us to love our enemy. To love our neighbour. Yeah, but you don't know how infuriatingly annoying my neighbour is. Yet they do this, whatever it is. You, but yeah, but, but I mean really... If, if, yeah, but you don't, this person, well, I've just, it's a personality thing. It's not that I don't love them, it's just they're really irritating and I'll find someone else to love. Yeah, but that's the person I've put you in relationship with. Yeah, but, but they, they've got other people to love them. I don't need to love them. There's, there's much better people. We can say all sorts of things that we don't necessarily believe fundamentally because we don't want to do what God is calling us to do. All of God's directions ultimately come down under the frame of loving God and loving one another. Because he wants to draw the world into life. And we need to remind ourselves that this is God. And these are his scriptures. In 1 Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is God. This is the Christ. And I can read Romans 3, 1 to 8, and I can get cynical and critical about the ridiculous arguments that they were, they were raising and miss the point that I do the same because I'm not wanting to do what it is that God is wanting me to do and I slippery and I wriggle and I argue about why perhaps that doesn't apply and I wonder how much God would love me to say my dear father you are so much wiser than me and you are always good and you only act in ways that are loving I do, but I'm going to surrender and that's the journey of continuing to step into obedience with God. And so as, we, as you read Romans, as you go about your day, let's be attentive to what God is wanting to say to us. And can we catch ourselves when we're doing what is done in Romans 3, 1 to 8, and just starting to argue and debate rather than surrender and lean in. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And the song is entitled, King of Our Heart. And that really is the question. Is Jesus the King of our heart? Have we surrendered to him as good and loving and as God? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your scriptures. Lord, even in this strange little bundle of eight verses, I'm deeply challenged about my capacity to wriggle and not just consistently and always rest into your leading in your direction. Father, I thank you that you are so faithful. I thank you that you are always good. I thank you that you gave your son to restore and redeem our capacity to be in relationship with you. Lord, we need you. Father, we want to be people that don't just carry a Bible around in our back pocket, but read it and meditate on it and are shaped by it. Lord, we want to be people who are growing in our obedience and capacity to love you with all of our heart and to love our neighbour as ourselves. Lord, we want to be salt and light. We want to be your aroma in this world. So Father, we we confess our sins. Lord Jesus, we confess the spaces where we have wriggled, where we resist. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to forgive. Lord, we pray, continue to lead us.